Uh, thank you all for being here. My name is Meryl Alapatu. I am a physical therapist and I'm also a researcher in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Florida. Um, I do have a couple of disclosures. I'm on the advisory board for the International Pelvic Pain Society, uh, which is part of the reason that I'm presenting as part of the IPPS track here. I also serve on the board of directors for the American Physical Therapy Association section on women's health, and I am a co-owner and founder of a consulting company called Stylify You. So we're going to be talking today about sexual pain and the savage journey into the bedroom that include that involves sexual pain. And so my objectives for you all today, at the end of today, I want you to be able to identify common musculoskeletal contributions to sexual pain. Uh, also be able to discuss how sexual and psycho uh, the sexual and psychological impacts of sexual pain, be able to identify common screening tools that you can use to identify sexual pain and associated distress. Um, finally, I want you to be able to identify the role of multidisciplinary di multi care for sexual pain, and then also be able to explain or describe the general components of a musculoskeletal pelvic examination for pelvic pain. Now, I like to be a little bit interactive with my talk, so for those of you that are interested um, and that want to participate in this, um, we've got a case study that we're going to go over at the beginning of the talk. It is a bit interactive, um, so if you would like to, you can send a text to the number 22333, and the message in all caps, M-E-R-Y-L-A-L-A-P-P-A-T, 816, no spaces, as the message. And this will get you into the poll that we're going to use with Poll Everywhere. Okay, everyone's got that that wants it? Oh, sorry. Ready? <laughs> okay, here we go. So we're going to start with the case. This is a patient, um, and this is actually a published case. This is a 58-year-old female who's presenting after completing chemotherapy and radiation therapy treatment for cervical cancer. Her primary complaints are of dyspareunia, or painful intercourse, uh, pelvic pain, and fatigue that she's had for four months since the completion of her cancer treatment. Other than her cancer, she has no other notable medical history or previous history of this pain, and she has not received any other treatment for her pelvic pain. So she presents to physical therapy. Clinical examination findings, um, normal range of motion, normal strength. She's able to ambulate, move around independently. She does have some paresthesias, the bottom of her legs, um, bottom of her feet, rather, uh, which are likely due from chemotherapy. The pelvic examination, we find that the lower half of the vaginal introitus, which is the vaginal opening, is painful to digital palpation. All of her right-sided pelvic floor muscles, as well, are painful to palpation. 
When we look at her self-report measures, her female sexual function index score is a 7.6. Now, scores less than 26 on this measure are indicative of sexual dysfunction. The pelvic pain intensity that she reports is a 4 out of 10. She reports an 18 on the pain catastrophizing scale out of 52, and then an 85 out of 150 on the fear of pain questionnaire. So in terms of her diagnostic assessment, her musculoskeletal pain was reproduced during the physical examination. She did have fatigue with a six-minute walk test. And again, uh, we were able to confirm her bilateral paresthesia and numbness at the soles of her feet. So this patient, in terms of her clinical presentation, was in fact appropriate for physical therapy. And so we completed seven sessions over 12 weeks. We also completed uh, dilator training with her as well. We utilized manual therapy of the mucosa overlying the pelvic floor muscles, the vaginal mucosa overlying the pelvic floor muscles. She also participated in an aerobic conditioning program aimed at uh, targeting her fatigue. And so these are what her outcomes looked at, looked like from baseline, the second column over, to discharge, the third column over. So her female sexual function and everything, everything decreased, which on the surface looks great, right? Except her female sexual function index score decreased as well. Now a decrease in this measure is indicative of worsening sexual function. So this was a red flag. This wasn't good. And so let's get into then our poll question. What is a potential reason this patient's sexual dysfunction, which is again evident by her female sexual function index score, worsened when her pain, her self-reported pain intensity, catastrophizing, and fear of pain all improved over the course of physical therapy? So you have three options. Sexual function was not adequately addressed by the physical therapist the patient was not having intercourse, or the improvements the patient made with dilator training did not translate to her experience with intercourse. Okay, is everyone finished? Okay, so we've got some pretty close responses here. So the answer in this patient's case was B. She was not actually having intercourse. And as her physical therapist, this was a patient that I'd seen early on in my career, and as her physical therapist, I was focused pretty heavily on her and only her as, as related to her sexual function. What I came to find out after giving her this self-report questionnaire and finding out that her sexual function actually worsened when everything else improved was that her husband had actually just been diagnosed with erectile dysfunction. So coupled with the fact that she had the sexual pain, they were also not having intercourse because of her husband's uh, erectile dysfunction as well. And so this leads us to, you know, a different... Uh, an, an interesting point here. Um, as, you know, aside from asking from the start, asking the patient about the impact that her sexual pain was having on their relationship, 
I should have also looked at each of those questionnaires or each of those questions on that questionnaire to identify, okay, which components or which subscales of the female sexual function index is she actually having the worst issues with? And in her case, she was reporting on that questionnaire that she was not engaging in sexual activity, which would then decrease her score, okay? Finally, had I known this or had I asked about this earlier on in this episode of CARE, I would have referred her to a sexual therapist or a sexual counselor earlier in, in, this, in, in this episode of CARE. So this brings us to, you know, what exactly is sexual pain? Um, what used to be called vaginismus, um, which was thought to be spasming or tightening of the pelvic floor muscles associated with penetration, or dyspronia, which is pain with sexual intercourse, is now considered or now called genitopelvic pain slash penetration disorder, which is a complete mouthful. Um, so I'm just going to call it GPPPD for purposes of this talk. <laughs> and so a lot of people say, well, why would you change, why would you group both of these conditions into a single one when those two seem to be pretty distinct. So in reality, distinguishing between dyspareunia and vaginismus um, was in fact unreliable. And their clinical presentation, when patients came in with these different conditions, actually their clinical presentation overlapped significantly. Um, the diagnostic assessment used to diagnose vaginismus as a vaginal muscle spasm was, in fact, not supported by empirical evidence, and so that's the reason these are two uh, lumped in together into uh, GPPD. So what exactly is GPPD? G-triple-PD. I'm, I'm missing a P in there. So this condition is associated with difficulties with uh, vaginal penetration during intercourse. It's also associated with pain during intercourse or penetration attempts. Um, the other component of this is fear or anxiety associated with pelvic pain or with vaginal penetration. And then finally, tightness of the pelvic floor muscles during attempted vaginal penetration. So this disorder, one or more of these four symptoms that I listed here has to exist. These symptoms have to exist for um, at least a minimum of six months, and they also must be associated or a cause of clinically significant distress. Um, these symptoms should not and could not be associated with medication or substance-induced sexual pain in order to be classified as part of this condition. Um, GPPPD is lifelong, meaning that the first attempt uh, an individual or woman has with vaginal penetration that's painful or difficult, that's considered, and, and remains painful or difficult, is considered lifelong GPPPD versus acquired when a patient had a period of time where she was able to have vaginal penetration or sexual penetration uh, without pain or without difficulty and then acquired this at some point down the road. That's considered acquired. And then finally, this condition is classified as mild, moderate, severe based on the level of distress with which they're presenting. So how prevalent is this condition? So this is a definition that was just instituted, I believe, in 2013 um, in the latest DSM, uh, DSM. And 
If you look at the prevalence of sexual pain or of dyspronia and vaginismus, depending on what study you read, the prevalence varies greatly. So anywhere from general population of women, 3 to 25%. It's been reported at about up to 45% in older women, and then about a third of younger women. Vaginismus prevalence anywhere from 0.4% to just under 7%. Now, the majority of women, interestingly, don't receive appropriate treatment for this condition. And there are a few reasons why this happens. Number one, women have a self-stigmatization or self-shame about having sexual pain. They feel ashamed, they feel guilty that they're not able to have intercourse, they're not able to enjoy intercourse, and that their inability to enjoy or have intercourse or avoidance of intercourse has a negative impact on their partner and the dynamics of the relationship, their partner. So there's a self-shame and self-guilt associated with this. And oftentimes, this leads to women not talking about it, not seeking care for it, because sexual pain is still considered a taboo topic. It's not talked about for the most part. And up until 2013, it wasn't recognized as an actual disorder. And so the taboo surrounding this topic is an issue. Finally, providers aren't asking about it. Or if they're asking about it, they're not asking specifically about it. So it's pretty easy for me as a healthcare provider to say to a patient, so how is your sex life? Or how is your relationship with your partner or with your husband? It's a bit more, it can be a bit more awkward and difficult if you're not used to having this conversation to ask your patient directly. Do you have any problems with intercourse? Do you have pain with intercourse? How long has this been going on for? Are you receiving any treatment for this, or have you received treatment in the past for this? The other, the other, the, the other issue here is that providers oftentimes, in addition to feeling, perhaps feeling uncomfortable about asking these questions, don't have the time in the limited time that they have with patients to ask these questions. So in addition to the host of other medical issues a patient uh, may present to the clinic with, Sexual function may not be at the top of a provider's list in terms of the questions or problems that they need to get through. And when we talk about this from a societal perspective, things like this don't really help at all. When, as a society, we kind of poo-poo or delegitimize sexual pain um, that not only women experience, I mean, obviously this talk is focused uh, primarily around women, but also men experience sexual pain as well. You know, in terms of the etiology of this, of this disorder, um, there are thought to be biomedical factors, psychological factors, and also relationship factors. And that's really why this disorder is best managed in a multidisciplinary perspective. Uh, like most or all pain conditions. And so when you think about this disorder, not only do we have biomedical factors and psychological and physical factors, but we also want to think about things like anxiety, reduced sexual behavior, uh, changes in how women view themselves as feminine beings, negative body image, uh, the burden that it's having on inter interpersonal relationships, 
um, and a compromised ability to not only enjoy their sex life, but enjoy their life in general, and declines in self-esteem as well. And so all of these things are associated with this disorder. Now that being said, sexual pain is not homogenous. Let's say that all of these women are patients at a conference for people that have sexual pain. They all have the same diagnosis of pelvic pain and dyspareunia, or GPPPD. Um, bring them to a clinic and sit and talk with them, and you'll find that there's a wide variety in how these women experience this pain and the impact of their pain on the quality of life, relationship satisfaction, and also the interactions with their partners. And so this disorder, like most, like all other pain conditions, it's critically important to take an individualized approach to it and work with a group of providers that's trained to uh, provide treatment for these women as well. So who may be part of this multidisciplinary team? This is not an exhaustive list. I want to just put that out there. And um, so who might be part of These are typically the providers with whom I, as a physical therapist, work most closely when it comes to uh, my patients with sexual pain. So licensed physician. Um, ARNPs actually should also be on here as well, because I work uh, pretty closely with my ARNP colleagues. Uh, physical therapist and a certified sex therapist. A lot of people aren't really familiar with what a sex therapist or a sex counselor does. And so typically, these individuals have a background in psychology or social work, medicine, counseling, nursing, um, or marriage or family therapy. Um, they are also certified as well. And so if you are a healthcare provider that's going to be bringing an individual who's a sex therapist onto your team or working closely with this person to manage the care of your patients, it is important and I think appropriate to ask, you know, what qualifications do you have to be a sex therapist? Are you willing to work not only with this individual patient, but if she consents also with their partner? And so identifying the credentials of the people to whom you're referring, I think, I, I personally think is really important. So what impact then does this condition, does this disorder have on sexual and psychological well-being? So this little, you know, this is, you know, somewhat glib, but think about the worst sex that you've ever had. Now imagine having it for a decade. Then imagine that this sex is so painful that you're in pain for hours or days after it. And imagine that you can't talk to your partner about it or you feel embarrassed to bring it up with your partner. And you feel embarrassed to bring it up to your friends or to your family because this is not something that other people talk about. This is not something that you've heard them address or talk about in their personal lives. And maybe the healthcare provider that's leading your team has not really asked you about it. So you don't feel comfortable bringing this up unasked or, or, or unannounced. And so this is what women with pelvic pain are dealing with. Typically, this is, in sexual pain in particular, is a lonely place to be. And I think that we have the ability and potential to change how these patients are managed, how their symptoms are identified, and get them treatment earlier rather than later. So 
The other thing to keep in mind is that women with sexual pain, not only do they obviously have pain with intercourse, they think differently about sexual intercourse. So women with, women with pelvic pain who also report pain with intercourse report that they're more fearful of sexual intercourse. They uh, report hypervigilance, meaning that they are just waiting during intercourse for something to hurt. They have more catastrophic thoughts related to intercourse. And not surprisingly, they also have lower levels of sexual desire and arousal. If something hurts you every time you do it, how likely are you to want to continue to do it over and over again? Not very likely, right? And so the other thing to keep in mind is this idea of fear avoidance that women with um, with sexual pain experience. And so the fear avoidance model of pain is a theoretical model that shows us why some people go on to recover from a typically painful experience without any issue. And the majority, in fact, do that. And then a small percentage of them go on to develop chronic pain. And so this model of pain is also used to explain or help provide a, a foundation framework for sexual pain as well. So if we look on the top here, our initial injury is sexual penetration. There's the, obviously having intercourse is the pain experience. And the people on this side of the model here, the women that experience persistent sexual pain, the catastrophic thoughts may be, I'm not a real woman. My partner's going to leave me. I'm never going to be able to have normal sex. I'm never going to be able to get pregnant. Like, we like I just showed you in the data graph, they have heightened levels of uh, pain-related fear, of hypervigilance, uh, lack of arousal, decreased lubrication. And what do they tend to do? They tend to avoid intercourse. And so this theoretical model of fear avoidance can also be associated with uh, sexual pain as well. So shifting gears a little bit, because my background is a physical therapist, and this is an area um, of my research and also my clinical practice, is musculoskeletal factors and how these factors can contribute to sexual pain. And so women who have sexual pain obviously have pain in the pelvic region, right? Pelvic or abdominal region. And so with this, we have several different groups of muscles. I think when people think about sexual pain or anything in the pelvis, the first thing that they think about is the pelvic floor muscles or Kegel exercises, kind of this laser focus on, on the vagina and the pelvic floor muscles. When in reality, we have several different groups of muscles in this region that can contribute to pain with intercourse. And so these are our pelvic floor muscles, kind of a... a bottom-down, top-down, rather, approach. Uh, these are the deeper pelvic floor muscles, and we think about pelvic floor contractions or Kegel exercises. These are the muscles that we're talking about, the levator ani, the coccygeus. Um, the superficial pelvic floor muscles are located here. And then finally, we have our muscles, our iliacus muscles and our psoas muscles as well that can also contribute to pelvic pain. So simply put, the musculature is a component of sexual pain. We cannot say definitively that 
these muscles cause pain or vice versa. But sexual pain is associated with a host of different painful conditions, pain conditions, including vulvodynia, endometriosis, um, irritable bowel syndrome, pelvic inflammatory disease, uh, for example. And so the musculature is just one component of that, but one that has received um, pretty good attention from a research perspective when comparing people with sexual pain to pain-free women. And people with pelvic pain tend to report more pain to the same levels of stimuli, not only in the vaginal region, but in other parts of the body as well. And so these are our pelvic floor muscles. When we talk about manual therapy for sexual pain or for pelvic pain, often these are the muscles that are targeted with, um, with, with physical therapy or with internal manual therapy. And so these pelvic floor muscles have a few different important functions. They are supportive in nature. They're holding up all of our pelvic organs. They're also responsible for um, signaling when it's time for us to urinate or it's time for us to have a bowel movement. And they're also important for sexual function. Now, there are also external pelvic floor muscles that people are less familiar with, unless, of course, uh, you work in this area pretty closely. So the external pelvic floor muscles are these ones denoted in green, yellow, and red. And so the bulbospongiosis uh, is this muscle then females where it compresses the vestibular bulb and it constricts the vaginal opening. In males, this compresses the bulb of the penis and the spongy urethra, and it's responsible for expelling the last drops of urine and also semen. Now, the ischiocavernosis, and that is a little bit more medially in. This muscle is, is, is for... Is, this muscle, it, the function of this muscle is to compress the corpus cavernosum of the penis and also of the clitoris. The superficial and deep perineal muscles in here. These muscles are important to stabilize the perineal body. And for both sexes, they expel the last drops of urine. And in men, they also contribute to expelling semen. Now, what else do we have going on in this pelvic region? We already saw the psoas major and the iliacus. We've got the femoral triangle, and we've also got the piriformis as well. And so it's important to remember that there's more going on in the pelvic region than just the pelvic floor muscles. So when we're talking about performing a musculoskeletal examination on these patients, we're not just looking at the pelvic floor muscles. We are examining all of these different areas to see if they could be contributing to pain. And we also want to ask our patients, are you having pain anywhere else besides your vagina during intercourse or at any other part of the day or with any other activity? So this might be hip or groin pain, abdominal pain, low back pain, sacroiliac region pain. All of these areas can, um, can be associated with vaginal pain or pain with intercourse. So, what do we know, then, about sexual pain so far? We know that there are changes in the muscles in terms of uh, motor performance. We also know that there's changes in how women with sexual pain respond to painful stimuli uh, when it comes to these muscles. 
We know that there are differences in how women think about sexual pain and about sexual intercourse. And then finally, we also know that there are differences in local and remote. So local meaning vaginal area, remote other parts of the body, pain sensitivity in women with sexual pain compared to healthy women. What we still don't know are the different interactions between all of these things. So we know that many other things contribute to the pain experience, right? We know that there are medications, there are healthcare providers, and the interactions or the alliances that patients develop with these healthcare providers. We know that there are varying levels of social support or environmental support in an individual patient's life. Um, what we still don't know is what, when studies report that a particular intervention was successful for alleviating or treating pelvic pain, we're still trying to figure out the interactions of all of these different things. So when we talk about pelvic pain improving with a particular intervention, is it because something changed with the pelvic floor muscles? Is it because women are thinking differently about sexual intercourse or about their pain? Um, or are they behaving in a different way? Are they less fearful of intercourse and thus not avoiding it as much? Um, and so these are questions from a research perspective that are really important and that we're continuing uh, to do work in to identify if we can better target our interventions and tailor them for the patients um, that are in front of us. So how is sexual pain then evaluated from a musculoskeletal perspective? And maybe first, you know, why should you care? So like I said, I'm a licensed physical therapist, but I recognize that uh, not everyone in here is a physical therapist. I think one of the advantages that I have as a physical therapist is that I can touch patients. It's kind of expected as part of my profession. I can lay my hand on a patient, and that's expected. We, people tend to expect that when they work with, with physical therapists. But patient expectations and how other healthcare providers, including physical therapists, set patients up for other healthcare providers is really important. For visiting or being referred to other healthcare providers is really important. So, how many of you have had a patient that said to you, listen, this is their first visit with you. Listen, I've already been to a physician, I've been to a physical therapist, I've seen a counselor, I've been to a chiropractor, an acupuncturist, and a psychologist for my pelvic pain. What could you possibly do for me that's going to be any different than before? Has anyone ever had a patient say that to them? I certainly have. And when we're talking about people with pelvic pain and sexual pain, by the time they get to a provider, a tertiary care provider that specializes and has the education and training to manage pelvic pain, we're talking about years, okay? Five plus years before these patients see a provider. And so we talk about patient expectations. Where do these, you know, where do these actually come from? So several different things contribute to patient expectations of not only healthcare providers, but also healthcare treatment and, that the, and the outcomes that they expect to get from treatment. And so these different things can include the words used by healthcare providers, even the site of healthcare providers or a clinical environment. 
the interactions that they have with other patients and people. You know, this is a much smaller world that we live in right now with social media and the internet and, you know, the number of patient forums on things like Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever it is where information is shared so freely and it's so readily available. And so patients come in, of course, with their own personal beliefs and their previous and their memories of previous therapies. Uh, you know, I can't tell you how many patients coming to see me as a physical therapist for sexual pain, they walk into my clinic and they look at the examination table and they say, oh, where are your stirrups? Where is the speculum? The physical therapists typically don't use stirrups and we certainly don't use a speculum to do a musculoskeletal pelvic examination. The same thing goes for my male patients who, um, so part of my patient population is treating men with pelvic pain or men with post-prostatectomy incontinence. So these men have been to the ur ur uh, their urologist for a number of visits. So when I tell them I'm gonna perform a pelvic exam on them, the first thing that they do is that they turn onto their stomach and they're getting ready for that exam that they're, that's typically given to them by the urologist or by their primary care provider. But my rectal exam with the male is done with them on their back. So it's very different things, and they come in with uh, different expectations of, of what this treatment is going to entail. So, you know, the bottom line here is that our words as healthcare providers have power and they have meaning uh, to our patients and you all as healthcare providers have the potential to set up that person to whom you're referring your patient to in a really good way or in a really bad way potentially. So what can you do to maximize this? Number one, you wanna make sure that you're giving patients realistic expectations about what to expect from a particular healthcare provider, from a particular treatment, if you're gonna be administering that treatment. You wanna avoid overly false um, descriptives or overly positive descriptives about treatments that are not necessarily associated with overly positive outcomes. And so, you know, don't, no one, no one actually, I don't think, lies to our patients, but just, you know, avoid overly, overly um, false things. And then finally, I think this is the most important thing. Learn about what providers outside of your discipline actually do before referring patients to them. Because your patient in front of you, if I say to, if I say to a patient, hey, I'm gonna refer you to this pain management physician, the first thing that that patient's gonna ask me is, well, what are they gonna do with me? What does a pain management physician do that's different from my gynecologist or from my primary care provider? So it's my responsibility as a healthcare provider to be able to speak semi-intelligently, maybe not fully in depth, but semi-intelligently about what that, um, what that healthcare provider does and what that patient can expect, at least at that first visit. And so that means that I have the responsibility and duty really to reach out to that healthcare provider if, if I'm going to, this is, this is something that's part of my healthcare team that I'm working with to manage the care of these patients, it's my responsibility to reach out and say, hey, if you had to give me a two-minute description of what you do as a pain management physician so I can explain this clearly to a patient, what exactly is that? 
So what does a musculoskeletal evaluation um, of the patient with sexual pain look like? And, and really the goal with this is for those of you who may be referring a patient with sexual pain to a physical therapist, I want you to be able to describe in general what to expect. Uh, so the initial evaluation or examination, obviously we're going to get a history of um, what type of pain this is, if the patient can describe it, where exactly it hurts. In terms of intercourse, what positions are causing pain? Is it with initial penetration or is it with deep penetration? Where else in their body are they experiencing pain and have they received any other pain or treatment for this pain before? Finally, the other thing that I think is extremely important is what are the patient expectations? And I'm gonna ask my patients this directly, what do you expect from physical therapy for your pelvic pain? Do you expect that your pain's gonna improve? Do you expect that your sexual function will, will improve? And what do you want to get out of this? You know, is there a difference between what your hopes, your, your biggest hope and desire will be in terms of this treatment versus what you would consider a success and what you would, would be happy with in terms of, of pain relief? I also employ a host of self-report questionnaires related to uh, pain intensity, pain catastrophizing, pain-related fear as well. Unfortunately, there is not a pain-related fear questionnaire specific to sexual pain. Um, our group at the University of Florida, we have not validated this or anything. We have taken the fear avoidance beliefs questionnaire, which has both a work and physical activity scale. We've actually modified that questionnaire to be specific to pelvic pain. It's not been psychometrically tested. We don't know. We could not tell you anything about the reliability or validity. Um, we are, we're using this just for clinical purposes um, right now, but the plan is to evaluate this and identify what the uh, psychometric properties of this are. But this gives us an idea of fear and fear avoidance related to sexual pain. I'm also going to be assessing anxiety, um, depression, and sexual function, and then also relationship satisfaction. So, you know, then the question is, how do we actually use these questionnaires? Number one, these questionnaires I give at the initial examination because I want to get a sense of baseline, where does this patient, what does this patient look like from a multi-dimensional perspective? Because I want to know more about, more than just what her pain intensity is with intercourse, right? I want to know how this is influencing her quality of life, if she's avoiding certain activities or behaviors because of this pain, if this is, is causing any sort of depression or anxiety or sexual dysfunction. These are going to clue me into what other healthcare providers need to be involved with the care of this patient. This is also going to allow me to assess the, um, the outcomes of my treatment over time. And so typically, I'll give these questionnaires at baseline four to six weeks into treatment, and then if it treatment's any longer than that, then it discharges as well. The other thing that I say, you know, I, I teach um, clinicians and I teach students about pelvic pain management. And one of the things that I get asked a lot is, you know, someone, my, my boss wants me to start seeing more patients with pelvic pain. We think this is a good referral source for us, um, but I don't really know how to talk about what it is that I do, or I don't really know how to talk about the outcomes that my clinic has. So 
how powerful and meaningful is it for you to be able to go to a potential referring provider and say, 80% of my patients report a 75% decrease in their pelvic pain or their sexual pain symptoms after six or eight weeks of physical therapy. So these outcome measures, these standardized objective outcome measures, also allow you to track your outcomes, not just with an individual patient, but with or of your clinic in general, to use that not only to talk to patients and help shape their expectations, but also to talk to other healthcare providers as well. So clinical exam or the physical exam, um, again, looking beyond just the pelvic floor muscles. I'm looking to see um, how well uh, strength and range of motion look like in the hip and groin area, the low back and the sacroiliac joints. Um, and then finally is the musculoskeletal pelvic exam. This is something obviously um, that it is extremely important to get consent for. This is not an exam that's required at the first visit. And I think that's the most important thing you can tell to your patients. There are patients who you may never do an in, that I may never do an internal exam with simply because they don't feel comfortable with it. And that is okay. That is completely fine. Most patients don't have a problem with this, but I do get the occasional patient where it may take a visit or two before we move on to the, um, the pelvic exam. And again, that's completely fine. It's definitely not required at the first visit. So what am I looking at? I'm looking externally to see if there's any skin discoloration or erythema. If the person recently had surgery or delivered a baby or other uh, trauma, potential trauma to that area, do they have any residual scarring from radiation therapy for cervical cancer or other pelvic cancers? Um, finally, then, do they have pain to palpation of any of the, these areas of musculature? And so with that, I'm always using a numerical pain rating scale, usually it's zero to 10 that I use clinically, and I ask them to rate their pain, and I'm touching each of these spots bilaterally. I'm also looking to see, can they do a pelvic floor muscle contraction? So I'm going to ask them, you know, I'll use a cue, the cue that I like, the patients seem to um, get and respond to is, you know, imagine that you are about to meet the queen, and you are trying to stop gas from escaping. That's a good one, right? And so most patients, you know, have, have felt the sensation of trying to stop gas from escaping. And so for them, it's a pretty quick and easy movement to do with the pelvic floor contraction. And I'm just seeing if they're able, not only are they able to fully contract, but can they also fully relax those pelvic floor muscles as well? Pelvic floor muscle guarding and tightness is another one of those factors associated with pelvic pain. So I'm concerned about their ability to relax as well. The internal pelvic exam, the other thing that, uh, that's important about this, this is not the same as a gynecologic pelvic exam. It's a single-digit um, gloved exam. We don't use stirrups. We don't use a speculum. I'm not scraping the cervix. I'm not going that deep. I am simply looking at the mucosa overlying the pelvic floor muscle, the vaginal mucosa overlying the pelvic floor muscles, and I'm looking at the vaginal opening as well. And you know, probably as a physical therapist, what I'm concerned about is does this physical exam, whether it's palpation or movement, does it reproduce the pain for which the patient is seeking care? If I can't reduce pain 
with a musculoskeletal phys physical exam, whether it's a pelvic exam or the general exam, that's, that's something to me that's a red flag. It's a, this may not be an issue that's musculoskeletal in nature. This may be outside of my scope as a physical therapist to treat. And so being able to re reproduce that pain is really important. Uh, we talked about being able to contract and relax the pelvic floor muscles. And I also want to know when they contract their pelvic floor muscles, does that, does, does that actually cause their pain? Pelvic, um, uh, the self-report questionnaires, we talked about these already. And these are really, you know, that, that, that time that you have with the patient to listen to them, talk about their problems, and interview them, that's where you're going to get the information that you really need to know. The, the, the clinical exam obviously is important, but you're not gonna know the extent of their problems unless you ask them directly and specifically about their problems. And then obviously the clinical examination findings, the presence of any yellow flags or red flags, and then finally the patient goals, this is what's going to comprise my prognosis as a physical therapist and help me identify the best and most appropriate treatment plan for this. So management of sexual pain, I could probably spend a three-day CE course, weekend CE course um, on this topic, and it's probably beyond the scope of this um, 50 minutes here, but treatment is, is generally going to depend on the clinical examination findings, the responses to the self-report measures, and also the, um, the history taking as well. And this is also going to lead me to identify who else needs to be and should be involved in the care of this patient from, uh, from a healthcare provider perspective. Physical therapist treatment of sexual pain may include any of the following. Patient assurance and education, reassurance and education is really important. As we talked about earlier, sexual pain is a really common problem. And so being able to share that with patients to let them know, hey, this is a problem that's more common than you think it is, is extremely important. Um, it may also include manual therapy, exercise, so pelvic floor muscle exercise and general exercise as well, desensitization techniques um, and graded exposure, so dilators may be used, and then also graded motor, motor imagery as well. So multidisciplinary treatment really is best practice. And, you know, I think there are a few really good pain management centers around the country where they have the fortune of the entire team that's managing the care of this patient being together, you know, maybe in a single room or participating in grand rounds. But for the most part, management of these patients really happens by referral. So I may get a referral from an ARNP or a physician, and then I may refer to a sexual therapist or a clinical psychologist trained in sexual and marital therapy. And you have kind of all these disjointed pieces of the healthcare system that are trying to provide best care for this patient. So opening up those lines of communication as much as possible is really important. Putting yourself out there, educating other healthcare providers on your discipline, what it is that you do and what you can do to help patients with sexual pain is really important. Now, what if you're not trained to manage sexual pain? Um, 
you want to obviously refer to another provider that is. And so in terms of physical therapy, not all physical therapists are trained in managing sexual pain and sexual dysfunction. This is not something that's part of entry-level physical therapist training. And so you want to refer to a physical therapist who has advanced training in pelvic health. And again, this goes back to asking that referring provider or the provider to whom you're referring, their qualifications and their training and education. And you know, I don't think people get offended by that. You're simply doing your due diligence in terms of who you're sending your patients to. Um, physicians, psychologists, also certified sex therapists can be part of this team. You also want to consider your personal and your jurisdictional uh, scope of practice. So can you legally uh, provide treatments for sexual pain? Can you, are you allowed to touch a patient? If you are touching a patient with sexual pain, what advanced training do you have that warrants you touching this patient? What, what, what are your skills and background in this area? And in light of some of the um, news recently, particularly with the Larry Nasser and the uh, sexual abuse and misconduct that uh, these athletes suffered, it's extremely important as healthcare providers that we recognize what our scope is and, and what it is not and being able to refer out appropriately. If you do need to find a pelvic health physical therapist, um, there's a website, the uh, American Physical Therapy Association section on women's health has a PT locator. If you want to find a certified sex therapist, ASECT also has a directory of certified sex therapists as well. And I can put those up at the end as well. So how does this savage journey end? How, do we, how, do we, how did we get here? Sexual pain by nature is heterogeneous and can affect women and their partners and relationships differently. Our job as healthcare providers is to identify the problem by asking about it and asking specifically about it, reassuring patients that this is a common problem that women face, and also ensuring that we have the most appropriate healthcare team in place to address this pain and also continued communication with this healthcare team. With that, I'd like to acknowledge uh, my funding sources, and I'm happy to answer any